Today's episode is sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone, from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 238 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about sewing glamour with my guest, Gretchen Hirsch. Specializing in vintage glamour, Gretchen or Gertie Hirsch is a designer who infuses her passion for sewing into glamorous creations that can be customized for anyone. She got her start as a blogger with the popular Gertie's new blog for better sewing and has collaborated with Butterick and Simplicity on the Patterns by Gertie line of sewing patterns and design fabrics for Joanne Fabrics, Spotlight Stores, and Michael Miller. A sought-after instructor, Gertie has traveled the world to lead sewing workshops highlighting her techniques. In 2017, Gertie launched her own independent sewing pattern line called Charm Patterns, focusing on new women's clothing designs inspired by classic looks from the 40s and 50s. And in 2020, she launched her Patreon subscription service, which includes monthly downloadable patterns and accompanying video tutorials, virtual sewing circles, live streams, and more. It has amassed a large community of passionate sewing enthusiasts from around the world. Gertie is the author of five books published by Abrams, including Gertie Sews Jiffy Dresses, Gertie's Ultimate Dress Book, and Gertie's new book for better sewing, with two new books due to come out in the spring of 2024 and the spring of 2025. Gretchen Hirsch, welcome. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. I feel like you've been a blogger for a long time. I was a blogger for a long time as well. And I'm just really excited to finally have the opportunity to talk with you and hear more about your journey. So um, let's start with where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I grew up in mostly in Delaware. Uh, My family moved around a lot because of my dad's job. He worked for DuPont. So whatever project he was working on, we would we would move to accommodate that. So we lived in Detroit for a while because he was in auto parts, uh, Wilmington, where he worked um, in their chemical division. And then we even moved to Brazil for a while because he was in Lycra for a couple of years. So. My child was like a lot of moving around and I had to be very adaptable. Um, I was a huge nerd. I loved to read. There was nothing I loved more than reading as a kid. I um, 
I learned how to crochet at a young age. That was the first crafty thing I remember doing was that in Girl Scouts, we learned how to crochet and I just ran with it. I made a baby blanket for my English teacher because I just loved English class so much. So you're getting a sense of the kind of kid I was. Um, And then I went on, I got really into theater. I was a theater kid for a long time and um, ended up going to NYU to major in theater design and had a lot of sort of weird false starts in my career, but we can, we can talk about that. that what next, is, I guess. what is theater? Yeah. What is theater design? What does that mean? Does that mean like, I'm imagining like props and set, or is that something different from what I'm thinking? Well, I initially, um, for anyone who knows about Tisch School of the Arts, you know, there are different studios you can uh, specialize in. And so I went to Playwrights Horizons, which was really a directing studio. And I had this amazing professor who talked about sort of the, the concept of design in terms of um, set design, costume design, lighting, um, and really taught me the basics of how to be a conceptual designer, which was something I never had never occurred to me as a kid. Um, So then I went on to move to their uh, design track in Tisch School of the Arts, where I learned about set design and costume design and that sort of thing. And then I never had a career in theater. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. but really an interesting, I mean, maybe you never had a career in theater, but I feel like the art, there is something theatrical about what you do now. So I do think it probably in some way came, came to, to be helpful, but we can talk about, about that. So what happened after graduation? Did you go, I know you worked in publishing for a long time. Did you get a publishing job right after? I didn't. I actually, The other thing I got really into at NYU was that I loved um, theater theory classes, performance theory, performance studies. So I thought, you know what, I think I want to get a graduate degree in performance studies and theater history. And so I actually immediately went to University of California at San Diego to start my PhD in theater history. I was 21 when I did this. And looking back, I think I was just sort of looking for what is I I was a really academic person and I I what was the next schooling that I was going to attend, you know? And so I spent a few years there working on my PhD. I got to the point where I took all my coursework but had not started my dissertation yet. And I at that point I'd done some um assistant teaching and I learned that this was not really for me and at you know the the young age of 23 or whatever I was at the time realized that a life in academia was not actually what I wanted. And I left this program, which was- That must have been really scary to to give up on it. It was, it was. And I know my parents at the time were like, what is this child of ours doing with her life? And um, it it, it was really scary, but I just, I just knew at the time that if, you know, like it, it was sort of a sunk cost fallacy, I guess, you know, you get to a certain point, it's like, okay, yeah, I have devoted a few years to this, but if it's not where I see myself going, there's no, there's, there's no return on the investment for me, you know, of time. Um, So I ended up leaving. And for a couple of years, I was a bookstore manager, which, um, you know, my, my love of books coming back. And um, I was the children's book manager at a Barnes and Noble for a couple of years and really loved that. I was still living in San Diego at the time. 
And it turned, there was a, um, a children's book division of Harcourt books out there for a while, um, which no longer exists. But um, there was an editorial assistant job that opened up at Harcourt Children's Books. And I applied thinking there's no way I'm qualified for this. Um, and I went in and I did an editorial test, which, um, you know, you have to write pretty much like a rejection letter to an author. You have to edit some marketing copy. Um, you have to do a short editing sample. And it turned out I kind of had a knack, knack for it, I guess. And um, I was hired in this position, which was, um, I thought this was going to be my career. I thought like, I've found what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a children's book editor. And so I worked at Harcourt for a couple of years. I ended up going to um, HarperCollins. I moved back to New York at that point because uh, that's really where the, the publishing scene is. So I, I went back to New York. I was working at HarperCollins Children's Books. Um, and that was the point um, where my interest in sewing started. started and yeah. yeah, so that's where this chapter begins. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. it's interesting. I mean, theater, it's like presenting a story to people, you know, for entertainment, to engage them. And, you know, books are the same thing. It's a type of storytelling, um, very creative for sure, especially in children's books, you know, with illustrations and the way the book is presented. It's really important. So there is some through line there around that sort of like creative storytelling, I feel like that that connects the two. Yeah, 100%. And I, you know, thinking back to what I learned about design in college, and then what I learned about writing and editing um, in my publishing career, I use all of those skills now. So it's, it's not like it was lost time, but sometimes it feels like I was a little directionless at in that era. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about learning how to crochet when you were young in the Girl Scouts and really loving doing that and making um, the blanket for your teacher, et cetera. So, but I know you also had learned how to sew from your mom when you were young. So what, what was the sewing like when you first learned? What did you make and what did you think about it? Yeah, my mom is a really big sewer. Um, she's still super into quilting. That's her thing. Um, and when we were little, she would make our Halloween costumes. I remember, you know, going to Joanne's and picking out the pattern for my Halloween costume and the fabric. And she would make our costumes every year, me and my brother. And so sewing was just kind of like a part of my childhood. I I did have an interest in learning. So my mom, she taught me the basics. And then she signed me up for a garment sewing course. I think I, I can't remember exactly how I'm really bad with dates and ages. So it was, you know, I was young and um, she signed me up for this garment sewing course. And we had it was the 80s. So uh, we had to make a, a vest. And oh, my gosh, I made a vest as well. <laughs> at teach fabrics in Maryland. Yeah. So around that same, you know, eighth grade. Yep. Both oh, my God. My yeah. vest was horrible, but I do remember it well. <laughs> Well, you know, we were just talking in the studio the other day about how Blossom was so influential oh, on yeah. all of us, you know, and she had these vests with, that were like very funky, right? So they had like buttons and embellishments. And so vests were the thing that was cool. <laughs> yeah. So I made a vest and matching hammer pants, you know, another, another staple of the era. Um, and let's see, I made the vest in blue and white striped seersucker and the pants were like a chambray kind of and I 
was like, this is not, this is not what I imagined when I thought about like fashion and sewing and like looking at myself as this awkward kid. I was like, this is, I don't like sewing. <laughs> this is not for me. Um, so I actually didn't really take to sewing as, as a kid. I um, only really picked it up again when I was in college and I was like, oh, I actually know how to use a sewing machine. So if I'm like making, I remember doing weird stuff in college, like making a suit for a puppet for an avant-garde production of something we were putting on for our, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. I could just kind of pick up a machine and I had that base knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You knew how it worked. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then you were saying when you were working in publishing, that's when it sort of reignited maybe from the, um, the fashion point of view, not just like a practical tool, but maybe something you could use to make clothing for yourself. So what was sort of the first spark that reignited your interest in sewing? It was really sort of a me finding my own personal style in terms of my own fashion sense and sensibility. So when I worked in publishing, I I developed an interest in 50s fashion specifically. And that was how, you know, I had to have a, a professional young woman's wardrobe. So I would kind of cobble together these outfits that looked vintage, you know, like little cardigans and um, my grandma's costume jewelry. And everyone would always compliment my clothes like, oh, my gosh, you've got this great sense of style. And I was just kind of like feeling it out. And then I started um, getting really into researching like 50, like what, you know, what actually is this world and um, going to vintage clothing shops. And that was around the time I discovered that I don't really fit into a lot of um, dresses from the 50s. And I think a lot of people have this experience. You see these gorgeous dresses and they all have a 24 inch waist and it just, you know, you get this, this feeling of missing out on, um, on this amazing fashion. And around that time, uh, blogs were super popular, as you know. Um, and I started following some vintage fashion blogs and people who collected vintage sewing patterns. And that's the first time I made the connection of, oh, it's not just, you know, vintage fashion isn't about just like going to a store and finding a vintage dress in your size. There's this like huge archive of print material, women who sewed their own dresses. And I saw people like sewing from vintage patterns, which that blew my mind. And so I got re- I got obsessed with this. And that's when I started, um, you know, sewing again, picking out my own patterns, going to Joanne's, you know, buying, bro- you know, the horrible polyester brocade sorry joanne's but um <laughs> buying the, uh, the the brocade and trying to to make my own vintage yeah. looks and you know just starting what was you know obviously a really long process and right <laughs> yeah right and i and i appreciate that you mentioned joanne only because i feel like so many people i speak to who are beginning on a journey toward becoming obsessed with craft in some way, um, they start at the chain store, you know, because where are you going to go? Like you're going to go to the store that everybody knows about and buy what's on the shelf. And that's the beginning. And maybe later you'll explore and get into more specialized things that are sold at, you know, stores that have different things. But I do feel like there's such an important role that that chain store plays in sort of the whole universe of the industry. Yeah, completely. And it was, you know, I went there first because that's what I knew from my childhood, you know, like those Halloween costumes that, you know, I knew how to go to the pattern catalog and pick out a a pattern. I, you know, from watching my mom do it. And then I knew, okay, here are the fabric recommendations. And then you go to that section. So it's, 
it's set up in a way that you can navigate it fairly easily. And especially if you have family members who sew, you've seen it in process before. So yeah, it's a super important way for people to start. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you started following these blogs, got introduced to this world, realized you could actually sew vintage style garments, maybe from vintage patterns, et cetera. And then you discovered this book, this Vogue book. Um, And so talk a little bit about that journey and the sort of the beginning of the blog. Yeah. So I started collecting um, vintage sewing books and vintage sewing patterns. I came across this book called Vogue's New Book for Better Sewing, and I just fell in love with it. It um, it was published by Condé Nast, who at the time o- owned Vogue Patterns. And the idea was it was 14 patterns that would make up um, a stylish woman's wardrobe. And if you've ever looked at a vintage sewing pattern, you know they're pretty bare bones in terms of directions. So this book really was what was supposed to take you through in a little more detail. Here's how you sew these things and here's how you can style them. And the photographs were just amazing. I mean, they were like fifties, like high fashion photography. And then there were these beautiful illustrations. So just the overall aesthetic of this book really resonated with me. And I kind of had the idea, like, it'd be really cool to source all these patterns and sew them myself, but I was kind of busy with work. And then I got laid off at HarperCollins. There was like a huge shift in publishing around that time. They cut down a bunch of jobs and mine was one of them. So I had like six months of unemployment where I uh, looked for a new job, obviously, but also um, I sewed a lot and I was getting a lot better at sewing and I was taking some classes and I was um, reading. I mean, this is my thing from way back. If, if I want to know about something, I'm going to find every book on the topic and, and read day and night to, to learn about it. So I was amassing a lot of knowledge. And then when I had a lot of free time on my hands, I thought, you know what? I love this I mean, it was a it was a real era in blogging. There was Julie and Julia, you know. Like- I was just going to mention Julie and Julia because there's <laughs> yes. I would love to talk a little bit more about that. There's definitely resonance there, but yeah, yeah. So I was inspired by those types of projects where it's like I'm going to do every one of these things that would make me a better artist or make me better in my field, my you know, or my area of interest. I'm going to do every one of those things and document it. So that's where the idea for the blog came from. I started actually tracking down the patterns that were featured in Vogue's new book for better sewing. Because they didn't come in the book. Like the book no. was one thing and then you had to go. It wasn't like today's books where in the back, there's an envelope with these patterns that you pull out. Exactly. Yeah. That's a modern idea. So it, in the, the Vogue's new book for better sewing era, which was 1952, by the way. Um, yeah. You had to go buy the patterns separately at your local fabric store or Woolworths. I mean, I look, you know, side note, one of the things I love about collecting these old patterns is they, they're often stamped with where they were bought. So it will be like, you know, so-and-so's five and dime or Woolworths fabric department or whatever, you know, there were so many places to buy patterns and fabric that we don't like now it's, it's Joann's and maybe Walmart, but at the, you know, there were all these little indie shops where you could, you know, you could go shopping for um, suit fabric and patterns. So it was, it was really in all the department stores, the department stores had a section that was for sewing. It wasn't like you just went there to buy ready to wear clothes. You could also buy things to make the clothes. Yes. And if I could step back in time, I think I would go, I would visit one of those stores. You know, I I'm so sad that we don't have that anymore. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. 
Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com for a special holiday deal. Sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. It's an awesome holiday deal. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. You decided to start this blog, named it basically after this book, but with yes. the name Gertie. And let's just talk a little bit about that's almost like an online pseudonym of yours. Obviously, yeah. your name is Gretchen. Gertie <laughs> yes. is a, a nickname for Gretchen. But um, I, I've talked to several people who, for whatever reason, ended up with like um, some version of their name that's not their full name as the way that they are known online. And a lot of them have said to me that it's been helpful to them to have the distance yes. that that sort of other name, you know, um, like I know somebody whose name is Stacy and really she's Anastasia, but online she's Stacy and that's helpful because then when people are upset or angry or critical or whatever of Stacy, she can still protect Anastasia. So I don't know if that is the case for you, but I'd love to hear a little bit more of reflection about like that name Gertie. Uh, yeah, I mean, that totally resonates with me, what you were just saying. Um, I I chose it like a nickname. It was a nickname in my family and friends, Gertie. Um, and it's, I thought it sounded kind of vintage. You know, everyone has like a grandma Gertie or an aunt Gertie. So I was like, it kind of sounds of the period and um, it rolls off the tongue a little more than Gretchen's new blog for better sewing. So I just, I decided on it on a whim and Obviously, it's stuck with me for, you know, 14 years and counting now. So um, a lot of people will ask, you know, there's like some confusion about, should I call you Gretchen or Gertie? And I'm like, I really answer to both. Like, I don't care what you call me. I mean, people in my, you know, my private life call me Gretchen and, you know, usually people online call me Gertie. And so that is the separation for me. Um, and I, I have really come to love having the separation because 
it's almost like having a dual personality in a way. Like Gertie is the sort of like glamorous one who does these amazing photo shoots and, you know, she dresses in satin dresses. And then Gretchen can be the one who's at home in her sweatpants. You know what I mean? And I get to have that off switch because, I mean, one of my main role models, I would say, is Dita Von Tees. And one of her things is like vintage glamour all day, every day. And that is not my thing at all. Like I want to be able to turn it off. I want to be able to go home and be comfortable. And I recommend that to everyone. Like, you know, yes, it's fun to dress up, but it's also fun to go like have a private moment at home and recharge. And so that is becoming more and more part of my life now is that I need to be able to turn Gertie off and go be Gretchen. So it's actually, it's been really helpful for me just in terms of my mental health and the um, the pressure of running this business is that, um, yeah, Gertie is someone who can stay at work and and Gretchen can can be at home. <laughs> and so how did the um, exercise go of sewing through this book? I mean, it it is a challenge. Um, and, and I know you did achieve a lot of it, but I don't know that you achieved all of it. So what was the reality of the book like? It was really, um, it was fun. I mean, I, for the first part of it, it was really doable. I was finding the patterns I needed. I found a lot of the more simple ones. Um, you know, like there was a pencil skirt and a bolero. There was one that was just a gathered skirt, like something that you really don't even need a pattern for. So a lot of it felt very um, manageable in the beginning, but then it turned out that there were some patterns that I just could not get. And I still haven't found two of them. So, and also the blog at that time kind of took on another life. It was about more than just these 14 patterns. I, at the time I was blogging every day and I, I have an interest in, you know, how sewing intersects with a lot of different topics. So I was writing about sewing and feminism, you know, sewing and um, gender roles. So, you know, politics, like what, you know, how does this relate to the world at large? And, um, and of course, fashion history and, at the time, a lot of my personal life too would show up in the blog. So it it became bigger than just this project for me. So that's why, I mean, I don't even feel bad that I just never finished it because it became a, a different goal, you know, in the end. And after a year of blogging, I um, I heard from a a book agent who suggested turning the the book into or the blog into a book. So it kind of became this new project um, to write the book and then go on to write several more books. And, you know, it just, it kind of just took on a life of its own that was about more than the, the original Vogue book. And, you know, the blog, I feel like for you and, and for me as well, it really um, was the center point, you know, was like the birth of everything else was like the home base, the place where all of it lives, and then all the opportunities spawned from it. Um, And I don't know whether what you think about this, is that true anymore? Can that be true anymore? You know, this was for you, it sounds like maybe 2008, nine, somewhere in there, um, when this was all unfolding. And so that was before Instagram, before all of it. So I just wondered what your thoughts are now in 2023 about blogging. Yeah, I mean, we've seen so many shifts in social media and the way that that people can, you know, gain a following. And I just, when I look back at that, like 2009 era for me, it was like such a specific and special time in terms of what you could do online. And 
it's totally changed now. I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong because I'm sort of out of the blogosphere now, but I do, I can't imagine someone building a huge blog following anymore. I, you know, I see obviously TikTok and Instagram and all that, and there are other ways that you can gain a following, but it was really special in that it was a long form uh, medium in some ways, you know, we were writing these long posts and, you know, very um, intimate thoughts and you could do these long form tutorials with lots of pictures, you know, a video wasn't even, <laughs> I make it sound like I'm like from the dark ages or something, but like video wasn't even that big at the time. And we were vlogging was a new thing after blogging. And um, so, yeah, I just, I can't see it happening the same way anymore. I feel like people, you know, they have other ways to gain followings, but um I, I'm actually really grateful that I started when I did because I think it allowed me to highlight what my skills are, which are, you know, I come from a writing background, from um, from a book background. So blogging was really the perfect medium for me. And okay. let's talk about that first book. So, um, so what was it like to write that book? Um, I know your editor at Abrams was Melanie Fallick, and she's such a um, sort of special partner to have, especially when going through a first book project, because she has so much experience and just a very specific point of view and great guidance. So um, so talk a little bit about what you learned during that process about yourself, about publishing, about sewing, about what people wanted, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge, that book project was just so ambitious. Um, It was called, my first book was called Gertie's New Book for Better Sewing. So it had this weird sort of like take on the blog became the, you know, based on the book now became a book. And um, it was huge. And yeah, Melanie is, um, she's a very ambitious editor. She was going to make this the best book it could be. And I, I feel looking back, I think I was a little out of my element and, um, I would love to go back and like do a new edition of that book sometimes, I think, because having what is essentially your definitive, supposed to be your definitive book, you know, right out the gate from being a blogger and never having written a book before is like, it's a lot. And um, it was overwhelming. (laughs) And I had never done a photo shoot before. Now I do a photo shoot like every two weeks, it feels like. But at the time, you know, I didn't know how to style a photo shoot. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. And now I basically run my own pattern publishing company. You know what I mean? So how far I've come in the time, um, I was really just a baby. Um, but it was, I learned so much and now I feel I can, I can write a book without the kind of pain I went through on that one, you know? Yeah. And even the title was something that, right. Melanie helped to shape. Yeah, um, definitely. So I, when I first met with Melanie, I know she was the one who suggested, well, I feel like this book should, you should be on the cover, you know, you should be the one modeling the garments, because that's what it comes from your blog, you know, this needs to be an extension of your blog. And um, so yeah, she really shaped um, the the look of the book, um, just the scope of it, everything. And, and that, um, that's where that resonance between Julie and Julia comes in, right? So there was a period of time where there were quite a few sort of blogged book mm-hmm. projects that yes. went on. And, and hers certainly because of the movie became probably the most well-known. Um, and But yours was one as well. Um, I don't know how you feel about that now looking back. <laughs> I feel great about it. I mean, I feel like, like I said, I feel like it was a really special time. Um, I, that, 
yeah, I just feel like it was a special time in in the media history because people could do this kind of project and have it gain widespread attention and you could write lo- books, you know, not just a, a 30 second TikTok, you know, people were writing books based on these projects. And I think a lot of the projects that came out of that time were really interesting, Julia and Julia being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, so you had this book under your belt and you did also start designing patterns for one of the big four pattern companies. I don't know if that I have the order correct, but, um, but talk about how you became, um, affiliated with them, how you connected with them initially, um, and what your ideas were regarding designing patterns. Were they, you know, like a vintage design that you were sort of making new again for today's woman? Or what were you thinking about about that part? Yeah, um, let's see. I don't I don't know what the timeline is either at this point. So don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, let's see. I know that I I was watching the next thing that was kind of coming in the craft world was um indie pattern companies. You know, that was there was a rise in that at the time. And I was seeing all of these really interesting women really just make, make patterns on their own, you know, and I was fascinated by that. And so I, I designed patterns for my first book and I kind of got a taste of what the process was like. And around that time, I thought, you know, I would love like long-term goal. I would love to have my own pattern company, my own indie pattern company. And I just knew, knowing myself, I knew I wasn't ready. Like I did not have that capability. I didn't have enough knowledge. I didn't have enough experience. So one thing that occurred to me was that I could approach um, one of the big four. And, you know, basically the way I proposed my book, I could propose a pattern line. And so I just the way I put together my book proposal for Abrams, I put together a pattern line proposal and I sent it to a few people and I got a great response from um, at the time it was Butterick McCall's Vogue went in to meet with them and they love the idea. I mean, I think uh, they're doing more licensed stuff now, but at the time uh, I don't think they'd ever worked with a blogger before. And so they just liked it. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, well that was, that was easy. And we started working together and the way I pitched it was there are all these vintage patterns out there. And a lot of them are really hard to find they're $200. They only come in a bus size 32 and they're unattainable. They're like the holy grail patterns that people in the sewing community want, but they're inaccessible for a multitude of reasons. And so I said, what if we could reproduce those patterns in um, a modern way so that they become accessible to people? And so that was the idea. So my first two patterns for them, one was a princess coat, which is, you know, princess coats can go like the actual garments for up to a thousand dollars, sometimes more now. So, and then the patterns can be really expensive too. So that was one I knew I wanted to recreate. And then one that was, um, it was inspired by a designer named Peggy Wood, who did these draped uh, Hawaiian kind of dresses with um, really beautiful bodice details. So I started out with two really ambitious patterns, which is kind of overambitious is kind of my thing. I, looking back, have realized. Um, and I went on to work with Butterick for, for many years and would do several patterns um, a year, usually two a season. And that was um, a, a great relationship. And I learned so much about pattern design and I did my own drafting and I did a lot of the modeling for those two. But, you know, I would just 
go into the city, go to go to the Butterick headquarters and do a shoot there. And so really, I mean, that partnership was amazing because I got the guidance of such an established company and um, was a licensed designer within their brand. So I've really learned so much from that partnership. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's difficult to get um, a master's degree in what it is that that we do. Yes. So, so in that way, I feel like these partnerships, that's the education. And although I know you took quite a few classes at, um, you know, at, at the Fashion Institute of Technology, whatever, and also like some private classes too with, with a seamstress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, people always uh, tend to refer to me as self-taught, which is fine. I did, you know, I didn't go to school for this, but I also invested a lot in my education, which I think is really important. So I do like to highlight that. I went to FIT. Um, I took a random assortment of classes. I did take pattern making and some draping. And then I also um, took millinery, which I feel like I learned <laughs> what a weird old school skill. I learned a lot from that. And yeah, I I wanted to learn more draping. So I found a private draping instructor who taught me the basics there. Anytime I saw a an advanced pattern making um, class at it, like an independent studio, um, like with Kenneth King, I took his moulage class, um, basically drafting your own bodice. I took um, a pant class with him. Um, I just all those like Threads Magazine instructors, you know, Susan Calgy, I sought out these people and just learned as much as I, I could. And um, yeah, I think that's such an important part of this is like investing in your continuing education. Yes, absolutely. And continuing to learn. So, and, and this partnership with Butterick, it sounds like was part of that education and, and was really um, helpful to you. And, and you went on to write um, several more books, which we referenced in um, in the intro. And writing a book is a huge time commitment and um, it's difficult to run a business at the same time that you're writing a book. I don't know what your experience was like with those other ones. It is really hard. Um, in the beginning, I didn't have um, the business that I do now. I was all freelance. So um, I did go back to work in publishing for a little while. I went to work at Simon & Schuster. And then after a year, I realized that the sewing thing was really taking off. So I left that and I went committed to um, the sewing career full time. And so all of my income at that point was, um, you know, royalty based. I did some teaching, like some private lessons, that kind of thing. So I was just kind of cobbling together this income. I would do books. Um, So I had more of an unstructured schedule at that time. Um, I wish I had appreciated a little bit more because I still still found books really overwhelming at that time. Um, But I was able to devote more time to it in in a just like, oh, I guess today I'll just write all day sort of way. Um, But now, um, and working on a new book right now and running the company that Charm Patterns, which is now my main focus, you really have to um, be so regimented about taking the time that you need to work on the book. So like for now, I take every Tuesday and Friday morning, I write at home. And then, yeah, honestly, a lot of weekends are spent writing. So I just have to find the time where I can and carve it out. Right. And then you also designed fabrics for Joanne and Spotlight in Australia. And these were fabrics that, um, well, at least some of them ha- were were unusual in a way. Like they were the kind of fabrics, at least the prints that you would see on a vintage garment, right? Like these border prints, which are sort of out of fashion in a way now. Like you don't really see those in a in a um, I don't know, like on the shelves and when you're shopping for fashion fabrics. Um, but but they're 
really collectible and beautiful. So, um, so talk a little bit about how you um, came to have a partnership with Joanne, because again, I feel like Butterick, they really hadn't done a licensing deal with a blogger. I don't know whether Joanne had either, or, you know, was that new for them when you came along? Did you pitch it the same way as you pitched to these other two uh, places? Yeah. So let's see. I, the deal with Joanne's, well, it's actually with Fabric Traditions is a company that um, I licensed to, and that came about through Butterick. So at that point, I had these relationships at Butterick and um, talking to one of the um, execs there one day, they said, you know, it would be, I can, we can put you in touch with a couple of fabric companies if that's the kind of thing that you would ever be interested in. Because at that point too, you know, pattern companies, fabric companies, they all kind of worked together. I don't know if it's still the case. I'm kind of out of that world a bit now, but um, they wanted to sort of cross market things. So you would have a dress shown in on the, you know, envelope cover in a fabric that was just released and on the end cap at Joanne's, you know what I mean? So that you could go to Joanne's like we were talking about earlier and make that entire look. So there were these partnerships going on and uh, they recommended a couple companies to me and put me in touch with people. And I ended up really connecting with fabric traditions and I did, yeah, I pitched a line to them again. I feel like, you know, I know now how to say like, okay, imagine this new line. Here's what it could look like. Here's what I want to do. And the way I pitched this line was these fabrics that you can't find anymore. Like you were just saying, border prints, novelty prints um, to make garments with, you know, not just quilts. Um, what if we could go, what, what if we could walk into a Joann's and find them? And so a lot of that pitch, the inspiration came from photos of vintage dresses, you know, and border prints were used so heavily in the 50s, like rows of gorgeous roses around the hem of a dress. Um, So the fabric has to be specially designed for you to be able to do that. And I, they were a little hesitant about border prints. They thought no one likes these anymore. You know, this is not a thing that people really like. I said, I really, I really feel strongly about this. Let's just try it. And so we did one border print my first season and it was uh, sort of like on a silvery dove gray background with white polka dots and then um, pink roses growing up from the border. And I, I loved it so much. One of my favorite things. And that was the top seller. So it was really great showing, um, showing, you know, these established companies that like, hey, there is this growing set of um, sewers who they love vintage, you know what I mean? They want to be able to recreate these 50s style dresses, you know, and they're not, they're like mostly young, or at the time we were like all younger women. And that was like something that really surprised people when I started was that like, oh, you seem so young to be doing this. And like, oh, all your followers are really young. And this is this new sort of young demographic that we can tap into. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that vintage um, era. So the 40s, the 50s. Um, I think there's some people who would say, well, why go back to that time period in women's history, right? Mm. Women were not able to, you know, enter the workplace. They certainly didn't get equitable pay. Um, they were secretaries, you know, all of that. And, and you know, kind of Mad Men era, like maybe that isn't where we want to go back to. So how do you react to that when people confront you with that idea? Yeah, that was a, um, that was sort of a criticism of my blog very early on. Um, you know, this is not, not an era I want to, you know, people were saying to me, this is not an era that I want to revisit. It was terrible for women, terrible for a lot of people. Um, and so 
instead of you know, being defensive about it, one one thing that I did in my blog early on was to explore those ideas and to um, to get people's comments. Like, how do you feel about this? Do you? Because um, I think the thing we all kept going back to is like, but the dresses are so beautiful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's there's no other era in fashion history that compares to this in ter- in terms of like the beauty and the silhouettes. To me, you know what I mean? And so. And I think that's pretty indisputable. Like people like Christian Dior, who, like the way they were introducing this new silhouette that was so artful, so gorgeous. I mean, it's a shame to throw that away because women didn't have a lot of opportunities at the time when we are now living in 2023. And I mean, I could say other things about women's, what is happening in uh, women's history right now, but um, I won't get into that. But I do feel like we can separate those things. You know, we can we can separate the politics of the time from the art of the time from the fashion of the time and enjoy it now. And the other thing I would say is that the, the fashion from this time, it's, it is part of women's history. You know what I mean? And a lot of these designers were women, especially the American designers. There's a whole movement, uh, you know, outside of Christian Dior and the new look, there was an American movement uh, called the American look that was a lot of women designers and they, and you didn't really see that in in European design so much. And so this was part of women's history and part of how women made a name for themselves at that time. And so I think it would be a shame to ignore it because um, because some people associate it with a darker time in women's history. Like, could, can we find a way to celebrate it instead and celebrate women's achievements of this time? And you, um, and to go with the the outfits, which you had mentioned, you modeled for the book, and and you've modeled in a lot of places. Um, you also have your hair done um, in those same styles from that same time period. Was there a place you were going to get inspiration or tutorials on how to do your hair, like somebody <laughs> in the forties and fifties? Because I would have no idea where to begin. <laughs> I mean, well, that's been a, you know, a long journey for me too. But yeah, I did um, early on, I really wanted to learn how to do those glamorous hairstyles. And so I watched a lot of YouTube and um, tried to learn how to do it myself. I would say the real, um, the way, okay, so early on when I did my books, I think there was often kind of a, especially in publishing, people wanted the, the clothes to look somewhat modern and the styling to look somewhat modern and relatable. Um, but then when I started Charm Patterns, which is 2017, I really wanted to just go all into this vintage look. And so I thought, okay, like no more holding back, no more trying to like, yeah, it's it's vintage, but it's also, no, it's vintage, you know, let's just go full vintage glamour. And around that time, I met um, an amazing hairstylist um, named Missy, and she's done a lot of the uh, styling for Charm Patterns and for my last book, Jiffy Dresses. And she kind of like helped me learn. I mean, she did a lot of the hair herself, but then also I learned how to recreate some of it myself. It's really an art. I mean, you know, you can you can do as much as you can at home, but sometimes, you know, Missy is a real artist and she has created some amazing looks. And now I work with another hairstylist. And I mean, it's just my, my theory and my whole approach to things now is we go full glamour, we go full fantasy, because why not? Because, you know, an escape from every day and why try to hold yourself back, you know, and do a more modern hairstyle just because you think it's going to be accessible. Like if you want to recreate that look, just recreate it, you know? And so it's been, it's been really it's been really fun getting to dive into all of that styling and really go all out with it. Can we talk a little bit about your tattoos? So, um, so yes, right. Full fantasy for mm-hmm. sure. 
hairstyle, styling, et cetera. We're not going to sort of try to bring it to today, but your tattoos bring it to today because clearly women in the 40s and 50s, for the most part, didn't have the tattoos that you have. And they're very visible. They're on your chest. They're on both of your arms. So um, in every photo, we see them. So I don't know, um, how. like, what what is your idea, your, your attachment, your feeling about your tattoos and, and being tattooed? Uh, I don't really think about it much anymore. It's just a part of who I am. But um, yeah, definitely when I first started, um, that was something that people commented on a lot too. And I don't see that quite as much anymore, but um, any of the negative comments I got were usually related to my tattoos. Cause you know, people, older people would say like, Oh, you know, the dress is beautiful and you're beautiful, but um, your tattoos ruin it. So I was often confronted with this idea of like, you've ruined your body or like you've ruined your physical appearance for me, you know, this anonymous commenter. Um, so, and I gotta love that. the internet. <laughs> I love it. I know. And I remember that was a big thing in my blog early on, just, you know, troll people troll me about my tattoos. If people are going to attack me about something, it's going to be my tattoos. And so I've just, I've just dealt with it for a long time. And, um, and another comment we get, I get, I guess, or we as a business, um, is that, well, like you were um, starting to kind of make the connection, like women of this time would not have these tattoos. So you are not actually, you know, this, you know, this is a great look, but it, you know, again, like you've ruined it for me because it's not, it's not like a purist vintage approach to this look. And um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. Um, It is, you know, my tattoos are part of me and I think they're a beautiful art form. And to me, they elevate the look and they also um, modernize it. But for other people, they ruin it. And that's just why we're all, you know, different folks, different strokes, different folks, (laughs) all of that. (laughs) So you had mentioned earlier that when you thought about back in, I don't know, 2011, 12, creating your own, um, line of patterns, your own indie pattern company that you felt like you didn't have enough experience, didn't um, want to sort of take that on because it's such a big project. But as you've mentioned, in 2017, you did launch Charm Patterns, which is your own indie pattern company. So what changed and what gave you the idea at that moment? Like, okay, I'm ready now. I can do this. I think the biggest change for me was that I started noticing all the things I would do differently if I were in charge, which kind of sounds like a terrible way to approach it. But for the first time, I felt like I was having these ideas for, okay, if I were art directing this shoot, I would love to hire this hairstylist, or I would love to choose these accessories. But I, for all the projects I'd done up to that point, there was another creative director. And so I found myself maturing into this role where I wanted to be that creative director. And I think that that's the first time I knew that I could give it go. And I also, from doing my books, I had experience um, in doing a bit more of the creative direction side of things. So, and especially with Jiffy Dresses, which is my last book, um, I hired the photographer, the hairstylist, like that, it was sort of a Charm Patterns production in a way before Charm Patterns was really in full swing. Um, So I had kind of started creating this team who I wanted to hire myself. So that's when I knew that I was ready um, emotionally, mentally, all of that. And then, of course, the financial part of it was that I I saw just my future. I couldn't continue to do this only as a royalty-based 
contractor the rest of my life. You know, there was going to be a, a, an end point for me and I was not ready for that. So I wanted to figure out how to take control, um, how to, instead of just earning a small percentage on the things I was creating, how to, you know, and obviously there's pros and cons to becoming, um, the boss, but, um, I do feel like I was ready to take control financially, creatively in every aspect of what I was doing. And, you know, the internet had matured also, right? So by 2017, the ability to sell direct to consumer to your consumer was really robust in a way that maybe in 2009 wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look at all the, you know, the women who paved the way in those indie sewing pattern companies, and they were just an accepted part of um, the sewing industry by the time that I started Charm Pattern. So there was now an established, um, it wasn't just like, oh, I bought this weird PDF online and I'm going to try. It was like, this is actually one of the more popular ways to sew a garment now is to download a pattern from an independent company and sew it. So yeah, it was really things had changed a lot in that time and people were more, I was more ready and my customers were more ready for this idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. When you look now, uh, I don't know, do you still work with the big four in any way or no? No. I don't. I don't. Yeah. So when, you know, obviously they've all consolidated now. So they're all owned by one company. Um, Merger after merger after merger. This is where we've landed. Um, There is one company that is the big four. Um, So so when you look at them now, I, I don't know, what do you see as the future there sort of as far as amount of market share, you know, I mean, you've got a perspective of having worked there in their offices for a long time, um, had that relationship, learned a ton. Now you're an independent designer. So you are almost, you know, there's a few like Liesl, there's a couple of people who are sort of in this unique space, Mimi G too, but where you kind of have the perspective, inside perspective from both sides. But I wonder what your thought is, like, where are we headed? Where, what is the future going to, going to look like when we look at this landscape overall? Yeah, I mean that's a great question and that's something that I think about a lot. Um I I feel like there's probably room for everyone. I hope there's room for everyone. I feel like there's still always going to be that consumer, you know, who we've talked about today who is going to Joanne's for the first time and you know, they they would never spend $25 on a pattern. They don't even know that um digital sewing patterns exist. Um, They want to buy their pattern and their fabric and their zipper all in the same place. You know what I mean? So that consumer, I feel like, is always going to be there. I hope they're always there. We need that consumer. So I think that that is where you kind of start out as the consumer. And then you may kind of graduate to, wait, there's the, you know, you learn this whole world exists of, there are so many companies. Oh my gosh, there's like, people are sewing with projectors now. They're not even downloading the pattern. You know what I mean? They're, they're just, they're not even printing it out. There's, it's just evolving so much. And I think the, I mean, the biggest strength that we have is the sewing community and they, you see them just become passionate, you know, and, and want to learn everything about this and try every pattern and every kind of fabric. And so I think it's just an evolution of the customer. They're going to need all of these. They're going to, they need us all, I hope, you know, and I, I think that yes, for the most part, the experienced sewer is going more digital, is is a little more savvy, is willing to spend a little more money on a pattern, but um, but the beginning sewer probably isn't. 
And that kind of leads into your Patreon. So, um, you know, Patreon is a subscription-based membership where people who are really um, supporters of your work and want greater access more um, can sign up and pay monthly. So, um, so what inspired you to start the Patreon? How has it been going? What are some of the challenges that you maybe faced that were unexpected or some of the joys that have resulted in having this sort of group of patrons? Yeah. The Patreon content is the biggest part of my business now, which I did not anticipate that happen happening. But, um, so after I started charm patterns, we would do a few patterns a year and they were all big and beautifully printed and they had booklets and buses and you know they were they're expensive to make and expensive to buy and they were shipped out and so they were sort of a premium product and about a year a couple of years into this but I started thinking about it the wheels started turning of oh this is not going to be a sustainable business model for me because every time I want to print a new pattern, I'm scrambling for that capital and I'm printing. It takes so long to develop one of these that in the, there's this sort of like no man's land of no revenue in between them or very little revenue. And so I'm thinking this is not like I hired my first full-time employee and it was such a stretch. You know, I, I could not see how I could continue doing this independently. And then I started thinking about this idea of subscriptions, monthly revenue, like that was what we really needed to be able to survive. And so I was looking at what other people were doing. And a lot of people, you know, they launched their own subscription service on their websites. Mm -hmm. I was really attracted to Patreon because I supported a few artists on there. It's, you know, it's for all types of artists. Um, And I really liked their model and the way that they approached it. Um, And one in particular who was really influential to me was Christine McConnell. I love her work and love what she was doing on Patreon and the way she was kind of taking the, you know, control back of the way that she was, um, you know, publishing and producing work. And so I was really inspired by her. And I started to kind of sketch out this idea for my own Patreon that would be a sewing pattern based Patreon. And so I launched that in February 2020. The month before everything um, happened in the world, and it was, you know, really the perfect timing. Um, people were really starting to quarantine, stay home, and so it was. It, it just, I, it could not have happened at a better time um, that I launched the Patreon. Um, and so the idea was that I would launch uh, a new pattern every month, uh, digital only, and it has a companion video showing you how to sew it from start to finish. And then there are also monthly live streams. There's a Discord server. Um, There's a whole community where people can connect with each other. There are a lot of other perks. We do like a monthly gift or not a monthly, um, a yearly gift that we mail to people. Um, So, and you can sign up for different tiers. And so the, I started to tease the idea that I was going to do a subscription-based service. And so by the time I launched it, people were like ready to hit that button, you know, my biggest supporters. And um, it just, it, was successful pretty much right out the gate. People loved it. Um, and they loved the sort of surprise every month of what's this pattern, what's the pattern going to be on the first of the month? Cause I always release it on the first and what's the video going to be. And, um, they just, it's created this really amazing community. And so that I would say the biggest plus is that it has enabled me to continue running this business and it has been the best thing 
uh, for charm patterns in terms of our finances and our sustainability. Um, the some of the challenges are that there is, I often compare it to a hamster wheel. That- I was just going to say, it's like an open mouth and it always has to be fed. Right? Yeah. Yep. It is intense. At the first year, I loved doing the, the monthly content because I was like, this is so, for me as a designer, I was like, what could be better than every month you're doing a different project and it's short term? Like, especially if you're like kind of, you love small projects and moving on to the next thing, which is kind of, you know, how my brain works. I was like, oh, this is, I mean, this is what I've been wanting creatively this whole time. And then as the years have gone by, we're now in year four of Patreon and I have no plans for slowing down or stopping it ever. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see about that. But um, I I just want to keep going. And it is, it's like, a, it's a hamster wheel that you cannot get off. And every, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as you release that pattern, I mean, we're already in meetings talking about the, the next launch. And at the same time, we're trying to keep charm patterns going because we're still doing, you know, probably six big releases with charm patterns, which is sort of the umbrella brand that Patreon lives under. Um, and then of course, you know, people want YouTube videos. We try to keep the YouTube channel going. Um, I'm writing a book, you know what I mean? So there's like, it's really hard to kind of manage it all. And, um, and it does feel sometimes like there's just, there's never enough downtime, you know, to kind of regroup. But, um, on the other hand, the, the, uh, income has allowed me to hire a team. You know, I've about 10 to 12 people working with me now. And so, I am able to, I trust all of them so much. So I'm able to give a lot of the big tasks to them. I'm still designing everything and I'm still the face of the Patreon and, you know, connecting with everyone on live stream, but I'm able to say, okay, you're proofing these pattern pieces today. And like, you know, I don't even look at the pattern pieces in, you know, the PDF file until the last round, because I know that I have this team that I can trust to be proofing everything. So, you know, it changes. I'm not in that place where I'm, I'm like with a mic, you know, a magnifying glass looking at every pattern line. I'm not that entrenched in that part of the business anymore. I'm able to run things on a um, a larger scale, but it's uh, yeah, it's intense. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for anything, but I I do I recognize the challenges. And you're writing two new books, which we mentioned in the intro. Abrams has changed. Obviously, Melanie left several years back. Um, and it's, it's somewhat different, um, than it once was. Are you still working with them or is, are these books going to be published some other way? I'm still with Abrams. Um, they are, you know, my publishing partner, as long as they will have me. And, um, yeah, I just signed up two new books. So that was, that'll be my sixth and seventh book with them. And yeah, it's a very different company these days. Um, but I think I'm also a different, <laughs> I'm a different company these days. So I. I don't need the guidance and the handholding that I needed early on. Um, I do have direction from them and, um, and their support in everything, but also the way that I, the way that I create my books now is with the charm patterns team. So it's sort of like they're hiring the, the charm patterns team rather than just one, one person. So we create the, I mean, I write the book and now we're, the, the next book has three patterns in it. So we are working on those patterns and they're in, you know, they're in the Asana schedule, just like every other charm pattern is, you know, so we are creating as a team and I, I have full confidence in everyone that I work with and that we're able to create an amazing 
product. And then I check in with my publisher every now and then. So, but when I first started working with Melanie, it was like, I would stay at her house overnight and she would like guide me and like writing, you know what I mean? Like it was such a different time. And now it's, it's, it's just a, it's a different era. And, um, I, I do love having the creative control that I have now. So it's, it's, um, I've, I've been really happy for the way it's been able to change too. And I want to make sure we get to your um, recommendations because you have some really good ones. One of them is digital sketching with Procreate. I know a lot of our listeners use Procreate. So how do you use it? I just started this um, maybe two years ago. So I still feel like I'm getting the hang of it. I would always sketch on paper and I even released a sketchbook of my own with Abrams, you know, using um, a crow key. Um, And then I kind of got into this idea. I saw people using Procreate to sketch and I got interested in it. And so I... Uh, I got a new iPad, I got Procreate. And then I was like, what, how do I do this? And the way I learned was I started watching a bunch of YouTube videos from illustrators. And I would, I would follow one of the first um, tutorials I followed was like how to make a cute little vintage style ghost illustration for a Halloween card, like totally unrelated to fashion. I was just like, let me just draw this cute picture along with this person who's showing me how to do it. And I love these tutorials. I learned so much from them. And then I was able to translate those skills to sketching my designs. And it has been really helpful um, because now, you know, I have a whole team who's looking to me to create the sketches that they work from. So I really, I can't, it can't be like a napkin style sketch anymore. I need to like create something really professional. So I really enjoyed working with Procreate. And I think also just for stress relief, it's fun to use that gouache brush and, you know, paint and just really have fun with it. And you have an industrial sewing machine. It's a Juki DDL8700. Um, So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I just wanted to mention my industrial because it's my favorite machine. And I know that a lot of people, when they get into the business, especially for home sewers, they think that they always need to sew on a home sewing machine. And behind the scenes, I'm always on my industrial because it's fast. It's like, it's like a race car, you know, you've been sewing on like an old clunker and then you get this race car and it's just amazing. Um, so I just, every time I sew on my industrial, I love it. I don't do it on my videos because obviously it needs to be more relatable for the home sewer. But when I'm sewing samples for a photo shoot, I'm on that industrial and it's my favorite way to sew. And your last, um, recommendation, which we'll put a picture of her, in the show notes is your studio cat. It sounds like you've always had cats. I do. I'm, I'm a cat person from way back. Um, and I have, I now have three cats at home and I also now have a studio cat and I, I just want to recommend, I recommend cats in general, <laughs> um, but I want to recommend the concept of having a studio cat. Um, I adopted Elvira is her name when we actually had a little bit of a mouse problem in the studio. And we we work in this old industrial building. And I think a lot of people may encounter this. You get unwanted visitors. And so I, I was like, well, we can't. We can't have this because we have pattern inventory. We have fabric. So there is a cat rescue in my building downstairs. And they also manage the building. There's like some relationship there. And so when I said, I need to figure out our, our pest problem here, they said, well, we could lend you a cat. And I, was, and I was like, well, that's the cutest solution ever. And yeah, I'll borrow a cat. And so of course I, I uh, fall in love with this cat. We named her Elvira. 
and she's our studio cat. And also I will say, if you ever, you know, work in an old industrial building and struggle with mice, um, they just smell a cat and they will not come into your studio. So that's my hot tip for you there. Um, So as soon as we got an Elvira, we never had a pest problem again. And also she's so cute and she is like stress relief. I was going to say, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When you're just having a rough day, um, just pet Elvira and you feel good. And there's, the other thing is there, I think there's like a concept of barn cats for a lot of people or like shop cats. There are a lot of cats who need rescuing. You know, I'm very pro adoption when it comes to animals. There are a lot of cats who need rescuing who may not be that appropriate for a home for whatever reason. And they could do really well in a studio. And Elvira is one of those cats. Um, and she's very sweet. She loves, you know, being pet in the morning and then she goes off and, you know, sleeps on a box for the rest of the day. So she's a good solo cat and she's a barn kind of style cat. And, you know, if you feel like you could maybe give one of those cats a home in your studio, I recommend it. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. Oh my gosh, I love talking to you too. Thank you so much for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone. From knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.